and welcome to the latest edition of the FT Advisor podcast. In a world that is experiencing sudden shifts between different economic scenarios, building an investment portfolio has arguably become more challenging. And even for those multi-asset investors whose strategies are meant to offer flexibility to meet investment goals with broad options for investing across sectors and more diversification and other investment strategies, can they really rely on how they've always done things? With the 60-40 approach having worked in decades in the decades leading up to 2020, we are now in a new normal of higher rates and higher inflation. So what does this mean for investment approaches? And how can multi-asset investors achieve true diversification in this new normal? I'm Ema Jackson-Obot, Deputy Features Editor at FT Advisor, and joining me to discuss this are Philip Chandler, Head of UK Multi-Asset at Schroders, and Lindsay James, Investment Strategist at Quilter Investors. Hello both, thanks for joining me today. Hello. Hello, thank you for having us. Um, as I mentioned in my intro, um, you know, we've said markets have experienced rapid shifts in recent years. How has this, you know, affected multi-asset investment approaches overall. Um, maybe, Lindsay, I'll come to you first with that, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, certainly. So I think we've seen um, really some quite significant shifts in multi-asset investing in recent years. Um, first of all, I think we've seen wider adoption of alternatives, partly because of the reduced diversification, really, that's come about from tighter correlations between equities and bonds. Um, and then aside from that, there's been a wider range of tools uh, being looked at for portfolios. So I think it used to really be the case that clients just had the choice between an active or, or a passive solution. But now there's ranges which can use elements of both um, in, in more of a blended way. We've seen ETFs also being used within multi-asset ranges. Um, perhaps the rise of factor investing is also something I'd highlight and smart beta. Um, that's also been playing a, a more of a part, partly, I think, because it's it's cheap, uh, very accessible, very liquid. And it means that the portfolio managers can really isolate the sorts of factors that they want to um, see playing a, a greater part in portfolios. I think we've seen ESG considerations also coming more to the fore as part of the investment process. And that's not just for ESG funds, it's for whole of market funds. And that's because there has very clearly been a link between good governance and also a a managed plan to reducing the the carbon footprint of of a company. So it's not about altruism, to be honest, it's about returns, but happily the the two are sort of linked there. And then the final point I'd make would just be around MPS solutions um, rising to the fore a little bit. I think partly because there is very explicit diversification within these ranges, partly because charges are generally pretty low and some of the biggest MPS solutions have had good performance too. So there's really quite a lot of choice out there now for for advisors and clients looking at multi-asset. What about you, Philip? Um, How do you see, have you seen the market evolving over the recent years? Well, as Lindsay said, we have seen a number of changes in terms of that inclusion of alternatives, the usage of blending passive and active, and a whole series of different changes that you've seen occurring over the last you know, more than the last couple of years, five, six, seven, maybe longer than that. But I think the the big thing for me sort of really keys into one of the things which you said, Ema, at the beginning of can we rely upon what has worked before? And I would say that the world has actually changed in the last couple of years. We went through this period post-GFC where you had low uh, inflation, you had low interest rates, you had central banks suppressing volatility, 
And that was one of the reasons why people have moved into things like alternatives as a way of trying to find additional returns. But what we've seen with COVID and with a number of changes that have been occurring at a similar time is that I would say the world has changed. And we call it the 3D reset, change it in demographics, deglobalization and decarbonisation mean that I think that the trade-off between inflation and growth has deteriorated. It means that central banks have got a much tougher task ahead of them now than they had in the 10 years pre-COVID. That means that we have a return of proper interest rate cycles, as we've seen over the last two years. And it therefore means that you can't rely on a portfolio that was set up 10 years ago for a very different environment. And if you think about it, there's a number of well-known passive strategies today that did very well in the 10 years pre Uh, COVID, but they suffered more recently. So I I don't think you can rely on a strategic asset allocation that was created 10 years ago. You need to refresh it for the new world that we're in. And I think that you need to find a way of having dynamism in a portfolio, be it from the asset allocation side, because as we've seen over the last two years, when you have this interest rate cycle, you need to react to it. You need to get ahead of it and adjust portfolio positions accordingly. But also, I think that on the underlying stock picking side, there are opportunities today that we didn't see as much in the decade pre-COVID. You know, there are a number of companies that will be winners, for example, from AI. There'll be winners from deglobalization, from decarbonization. And then there are a number of companies that are probably going to be losers because they're not going to be able to survive higher interest rate costs. They spent 10 years pre-COVID funding themselves basically for free. It didn't matter if they were profitable, they still stayed afloat. I don't think that's going to be the case going forwards. So I think you need to adjust for the world that's changed strategically, but you then need dynamism in terms of asset allocation and in terms of stock picking. Thanks for that, Philip. Um, Excuse me. Um, Lindsay, when when you were talking before, it sounded like, you know, we we often talk about the 60-40 approach, you know, and people ask, is it dead or does it just need tweaking? I mean, how can an investor really achieve true diversification in today's economic environment? Well, that's a great question. And I think the words that are most important in that question are today's economic environment, because as Philip said, that has changed enormously over the past decade. So so what is today's economic environment? Well, it's high but declining levels of inflation. It's high but currently declining bond yields, slowing but still positive economic growth. Excitement, as, as Philip alluded to, around AI and the now more visible opportunities that there are there. And concerns too about the abilities of smaller businesses in particular to uh, renew their debt and shoulder that debt burden with interest rates so much higher. And we could characterise it in so many other ways. We could talk about geopolitics and the loss of the the peace dividend um, as well, the the post-COVID services boom. So to have good diversification, you need holdings that can benefit both from the current backdrop, but also from the converse. So rising and falling inflation, declining and rising bond yields, accelerating and slowing economic growth. And it's not about neutralising the view of the fund manager, because what we don't want to do is turn an active fund into a passive fund um, by doing that, partly because clients, of course, are paying those active fund charges. But there needs to be a degree of insurance within the portfolio. That means if the portfolio manager has has read the forecasts incorrectly, if they're right over five years, but wrong over three years, or if something completely unpredictable happens as well, then you know there needs to be some resilience in portfolios for that. 
And I think as well, when we think about diversification and the importance of it, we need to understand the, the backdrop, the fact that there used to be negative correlation between equities and bonds, but really that has that has evaporated over the past decade. So, um, and actually it's been a longer term thing, you know, back in the 80s, correlations were pretty low. They were up around sort of 0.25 they rose to around 0.5 in the 2010s, 0.7 in, in 2020. Um, and so that 60-40 portfolio doesn't really offer the diversification benefits that it once did. You have to think a bit more broadly. And Philip, I mean, what do you think about that in terms of trying to achieve... <coughs> Bless you. Excuse me. <laughs> in terms of trying to achieve um, true diversification, um, Philip, what do you think? Well, I mean, you think about it, diversification is about holding a mixture of assets that react differently to the same set of economic conditions. And for a long period, the equity bond sort of correlation was wonderful, as as Lindsay said. So if you think about it, whenever growth slowed, there was a hit to equities, but bonds benefited because of an expectation that central banks were going to cut interest rates. And we've been in a different world over the last two years because the threat has been inflation rather than growth. And both equities and bonds react negatively to inflation. Um, So therefore, you need to find other asset classes that can react positively to inflation. And commodities are are the obvious one there. But also, we found hedges within currency exposures. So if you think about it, if you go and buy US dollars, you did very well over the past couple of years because the Fed was able to act so aggressively to rein in inflation that it meant that the US dollar was a very good hedge against that higher inflation and the higher rates that we saw. So currencies are an an option as well. But it's about that diversification, making sure you have a a, a mixture of exposures now. You're not just hedging growth risk, you're hedging inflation risk as well. And that's why you still need to have a, a broader set of assets in the portfolio as opposed to just purely equity bonds. And if I look at... Uh, a range of funds that I manage, for example, that in you know, previous years have very low commodity weights. We've held commodities 70% of the time over the last two years because they're the asset class that have given you the hedge against the inflation risk. And if, and if you're saying that investors have to you know, think broader or maybe, for want of a better word, maybe become more flexible in terms of you know, asset allocation, how do you balance that with managing risk? So I think that one of the... One of the issues that people can sometimes have with risk is getting too fixated on numbers and volatilities. And you say that the risk of a portfolio is 5.832967.4% and it's spurious accuracy. Because that's just sort of a, a number that your risk system spits out as an average over time. So I think there's a couple of things. One is that we look at scenarios as a way of assessing risk in a portfolio. And we ask ourselves, you know, we have a base case for what we think is going to happen in the global economy, but where could we be wrong? What could happen that would throw us off course? Uh, How could that event sort of manifest itself through the global macroeconomy and impact markets? And when you start thinking about different scenarios and the impact they have upon growth and inflation, then you realise that risk isn't just a single number because the portfolio can react differently in each of those different scenarios. So an inflationary scenario that's pro-growth. So for example, consumers continuing to spend, spending the excess savings that they um, uh, accumulated during the pandemic is a very different pro-growth scenario to a more stagflationary one where actually growth is limited. And that has a very different 
uh, effect for for markets. So I think it's about moving beyond risk as just a simple number and trying to think more intelligently about the different things that could happen, how they happen, and the impact it has on portfolios. And some of those effects aren't necessarily negative. Some of them are, are positive for people's portfolios. You can have upside surprises as well as downside. Lindsay, do you, do you agree? So, yes, to an extent. And I think scenario analysis is very valid because let's remember that the the central banks are all very data dependent at the moment and they're not nailing their colours to the mast at all. They're being very much uh, mindful of each data point that that comes in and then responding to that. But there was something that Philip said that I wanted to pick up on and that was on... um, well, again, the scenario analysis view where, for example, if we had gone rolled back two years and then saw the extent of interest rate rises that were then on the horizon, would we really have anticipated mega cap growth stocks in the technology sector to have done as well as they have done? And I think that did catch people by surprise, to be honest. And I think part of the reason that they have performed well is actually because they have very strong balance sheets and net cash and and the excitement, the opportunity around AI has completely dominated sort of the growth um, story, if you like. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's been a little, perhaps a little bit more of a surprise, I think, for many. Um, but when we think about risk, I do agree with the fact that we have to challenge our conviction, we have to challenge our views. And whilst you can look at the logistics of it around the vehicles that you might use, um, perhaps using at least a a blended portfolio rather than passive, because passives really aren't that diversified um, in the main. Um, The main thing is really about challenging that mindset, getting comfortable thinking, really will small caps grow faster than large caps? Because probably it hasn't been the case this year. Um, Will valuations mean revert over time? Again, we've just seen valuations grow for the Magnificent Seven stocks uh, for really much of the last two years. Uh, you know, and also how much do those valuations matter for stock like NVIDIA, which is at the beginning of, of really an exciting journey? So it's really important to keep having that debate. And, and by doing that, by challenging those views and not just subscribing to sort of the... Um, the, the popular vernacular, I think that will also support more diversification in portfolios. Um, I mean, I'm sure you've seen the news today that the um, the UK economy has shrank, has shrunk more by more than expected in in October. There's higher rates of squeeze consumers and bad weather swept the country. I was just going to ask. I mean, um, if rates do you know remain high for longer, what does this mean for multi asset investors as we look ahead into sort of next year? Uh, well, I think, first of all, the market has got a little bit too excited about the prospect of rate cuts. You mm. know, when we look at what's priced in at the moment, um, when I looked this morning, it was around a 42% probability of a rate cut by May in the US. Mm. Um, now, that's possibly a bit on the optimistic mm. side. When you look at what's happening to, to core inflation, it's pretty stubborn. Mm. Economic growth has been very resilient there. Mm-hmm. And I think if people really do have to wait till the back end of the year, as we suspect they might... That could be um, what well, could see bond yields sort of drifting higher uh, and maybe headwind for returns in that part of the bond market. Um, and really, it's 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 a similar story in other developed markets when it comes to government bonds. We've seen quite big moves over the last few weeks and perhaps the investment community has got a bit ahead of itself on, on that front. Mm. Uh, but there will be opportunities, even in a higher for longer backdrop. We still see 
for example, quality businesses doing well where they can pass on those higher costs of debt burdens or inflation to consumers. We've seen that to a degree already. Uh, there will be other defensive areas like healthcare, which are really enjoying tailwinds at the moment from the success of the semiglutide uh, drug range that's, that's worked so well, um, and other areas of innovation that's really come off the back of the pandemic there and, and changing demographics. The defence sector in Europe is another area where I think we're seeing continued and structural shifts in long-term defence spending by governments that is changing really the backdrop for businesses like that. Uh, so whilst there will be headwinds, there will, there is always going to be opportunities for innovation and you know, areas to invest with positive returns likely in the nearer term. What, what do rates uh, mean for investors, Philip? I think the first question is why, in this hypothetical scenario, rates mm. are staying higher. Is it because growth is much stronger than expected? Mm. Is it because inflation doesn't come down as we think it's going to? Is it because the central bank reaction function is much harsher? There's a real desire to avoid a repeat of the 1970s where they declared too early a victory on inflation and cut too early. And therefore, central bankers want to really turn the screw on inflation even when the underlying data is much weaker. Because those three scenarios have very different repercussions for markets. If it's about stronger growth, and it's great for earnings. Mm. It's great for, for small caps. It's great for industrials, for cyclicals. Um, an environment where inflation is much higher is the one that comes back to the previous discussion about you know, what can you do to hedge inflation, commodities, currencies. You know, presumably, if the Fed aren't cutting, for example, then the dollar could be much stronger. Um, whereas on the flip side, markets where you see that they are further ahead in their inflation battle today, they are able to cut rates, may see weaker currencies, they may see stronger asset prices as a result. If it's about central banks changing their reaction function and really trying to tighten the screws on inflation, well, that's not a good scenario for most equities and bonds. But once again, currencies end up being the hedge for you. So I think it really depends upon, in that hypothetical question of if rates stay higher for longer, what is it that's driving it? Okay, okay. Um, I mean, can I ask you guys a question uh, that's sort of come up to my head and it's really about sort of investors, you know, and the types of investors, you know, that determine the type of multi-strategy, multi-asset strategy that should be followed, you know. And I think investors are a lot more, I suppose, anxious at the minute i mean it's fair to say i was just going to ask you i mean is there is there sort of hypothetically speaking broadly speaking a type of strategy that typically you know a type of strategy that works for a particular type of investor maybe philip i can ask you that question first well i think it's critical that advisors you know work to know their clients Mm -hmm. their objectives and their tolerance for risk. And that's all part of the advisor path in terms of building out an appropriate strategic asset allocation for a client that will meet their goals, but one that uh, the client and the advisor can stick to during difficult times. Mm. Uh, every client is different. Every client has different objectives. Every client has a different appetite for risk. And that's why uh, we have a whole variety of different funds or models available for people to, to hit that. So there is no one size fits all. I mean, you could argue that for a long period, the 60-40 portfolio was almost that mythical one size fits all because it worked so well for such a long period of time. But I think that in this environment, as I said earlier, of demographic change, deglobalization, decarbonization, the impact that has upon the trade-off between growth and inflation, the consequent impacts upon central banks and interest rate cycles, um, volatility is likely to be higher. We need to find ways of hedging inflation risk in a portfolio. We need to do more than just a, a simple 60-40 strategy. 
talking about you, Emily. Yeah, so I would agree with much of that. And I think this is where risk-targeted portfolios can be really quite useful because you understand a little bit more about what you're getting in terms of the likelihood of uh, future volatility to be within a particular range, for example. Um, And I think as well, um, when we look at um, the expectations of clients, thankfully, they're sort of negatively correlated with the likelihood for returns in some ways. Mm. Uh, They are quite negative, as you alluded to Mm. at the moment, because they've had pretty pretty challenging time for the last two years. Yes, this year has been better in markets, but it's come off a very, very weak 2022. So when we look at two-year returns, you know, I don't think anyone's particularly thrilled at what they've seen in, in markets. Um, but happily, we can now see bonds, for example, offering those diversification benefits again. Um, they have headroom now, if the economy is weak, to perform quite well within portfolios and support overall portfolio returns. Um, and a lot of the sort of investment community was really anticipating recession in the next 12 months. And it looks like that is now um, less likely mm. as a scenario. So it may well be the case that perhaps it's darkest before the dawn and, and the year ahead will, will be better and, and alleviate a lot of their mm. concerns. And, and for advisors, I mean, is there, do they... I, mean, I don't know if this question is is intelligent enough, but do, is there something that they do? They want different things from multi asset portfolios than they previously did, or um, how do you, how do they sort of how do you engage with them on that? I think part of that is how advisors are building portfolios. Mm. You know, are you trying to do some sort of core satellite approach, and if so, what's the format for the multi asset portfolio? There was. Uh, a strong desire several years ago for portfolios that really had a negative correlation with other assets. That didn't work out very well for anyone. Those portfolios just didn't deliver any returns at any point, really. Um, and so I think the, the focus now is more on building sensibly constructed portfolios that can deliver in a variety of different environments, that can deliver to a client's goals over the medium term, But critically, I think the important thing, and it does divide some multi-asset portfolios a day, is are you trying to smooth the path of returns or not? If I think about the portfolios I manage, we were underweight equities, we were underweight bonds at different times in the first half of last year, and we protected clients against some of those downside risks. We didn't cover all the drawdown, but we did protect people. We smoothed the path of returns. I think that's so important at the moment in terms of as a as a nation generally, we're not saving enough. And so when clients see drawdowns, they become frightened and you deviate from the plan that you'd set up in terms of contributions every month or quarter and how they're going to be invested. So it's important that we smooth that path of returns. And I think that in this new world environment where volatility should be higher, it means that the importance of asset allocation, of dynamically changing the positions you have through time, of trying to protect returns by underweighting assets where you think there's a risk, is super important today, more so than it has been for a number of years. Do you want to add to that? Well, I was just wondering actually whether um, Philip thinks that volatility will come down over time because diversification could well improve um, in the next few years. We've seen we've come off the back of a period where there hasn't been a huge amount of diversification between um, returns in equities and bonds. But actually, it could now get better. And so, all else equal, you would envisage that that would see lower volatility in multi-asset portfolios. I mean, certainly we should hopefully see lower volatility than we saw last year in the first half of this year. And if I think about 
the talk we have, the 3D reset of demographics, deglobalization, decarbonization. I'm not talking about inflation going to 6 7% and staying there. But if you think about it, in the 2010s, US inflation, US core PC, so the measure the Fed looks at most closely, averaged 1.5%. And when the Fed's got a 2% target, 1.5% inflation means that the Fed are continually tapping on the accelerator. We saw that with low interest rates. We saw it with quantitative easing. And that's a very different world in which, let's say, hypothetically, inflation averages 25 one5 1.5 to 2.5 doesn't sound that much of a difference. But that's the difference between the Fed going from tapping on the accelerator to tapping on the brakes all the time, keeping policy a bit tighter, interest rates are higher, acting more quickly when they see an inflation threat, and therefore got more volatility in interest rates. Um, and the Fed not able to ride to the rescue with the sort of fabled central bank put in quite the same way. That put is still there, but it's struck at a lower level. And therefore, you know, volatility should be lower than it has been in the last two years. Diversification should be better than it has been in the last two years. But I think it's going to be worse versus what we saw in that period between the GFC and COVID. And that's the critical thing, because that's the period that people have anchored many of their expectations on. You know, even people who've been in the market for the last 30, 40 years are probably still going to remember the last 10 years more than they'll remember the 1980s. So what you're anchoring your uh, sort of priors on is that period of low inflation, mm. low volatility, the central bank continually helping you out. And I think at the margin, those things are all changing. Mm. And therefore, the outcome isn't as, as easy as it was before. We can't just sit passively in a 60-40 portfolio with an equity bond ratio that was set 10 years ago yeah. and um, sort of ride a sort of a, a wave of sort of passive beta where within equities most markets go up at the same amount. Now I think there are going to be real winners and losers at the company level. There is clearly going to be some companies that will really benefit from AI, mm. that will really benefit from uh, sustainability trends, that will really you know, decarbonisation and, and the need to produce a low-carbon economy. And I think there are a lot of companies that will really suffer from this world of higher interest rates and more volatility. That, you know, you had a whole bunch of unprofitable companies that have survived because they could borrow at zero. Mm. And if they can't borrow at zero in the future, yeah. what happens to them? So mm. I think you see a real sort of uh, greater spread in terms of returns within markets. Mm. Thanks very much. I mean, before we go, because um, we have come, come into the end of our podcast, I mean, do you, either of you have any other predictions for 2024? Or is that, are we, are, are we, uh, are we in that world where really things are just so fast changing, it's hard to predict? <laughs> well, I think we have to keep in top of the uppermost mind that mm. regardless of the timing of interest rate cuts, and that is a huge debate and will continue to be a huge debate, we are likely to see interest rate cuts in the next 12 months. And when those first cuts begin, those tend to be very good for, for returns. And you mm. get the, the strongest returns in, in that early part of the cycle. Now, I think we could well have some volatility before we get to that point as expectations are calibrated around that. Um, and I also look at earnings expectations for next year and think there's really quite a lot of optimism baked into that. Mm. Um, now, we have seen some of those 
biggest, fastest growing businesses with highest margins delivering a big chunk of those expectations. But there is still room for disappointment in the next six months, to be sure, for for that to be reined in a little bit. Um, So over the next 12 months, I am generally reasonably optimistic about multi-asset returns. Not everything is going to work, but I think there will be enough winners. We should see positive returns in the round, um, largely because of the likelihood of, of rate cuts coming through. So mindful of the fact that inflation is still relatively punchy. If you're in cash, um, I would be moving into markets uh, and taking that medium-term view uh, and not being too concerned about short-term volatility on, on the route to those returns. Great. And, and Philip, any last words before we go? Well, from our side, we focus on two lenses of valuations and the cycle. And clearly that valuation side has improved in the last two years. Now, you went from, at one point, not long ago, gilts offering a, a yield of half a percent. So prospective returns for gilts were really poor. Um, and they've significantly improved. Yes, we've had a rally in the last month or two, but the yields are, are starting from much better levels for bonds. And I think the prospective returns for equities now are much better than they were a couple of years ago. Mm. So on a multi-year period, I think the outlook for markets is a lot better today than it was, say, two years ago. The difficulty is the cyclical side where, as Lindsay said, there is a mixed picture. Um, Growth has been slowing in some areas, and that's what's sort of, you know, giving this hope for central bank rate cuts. Earning expectations are relatively high in some areas, so there's some question marks there. Bonds benefit from rate cuts. Equities we've seen in the last six weeks have benefited from talk of rate cuts and the impact that's had on valuations. But at the same time, a world where central banks are cutting rates is normally one of lower growth and that has an impact upon earnings expectations. So I I think there's some positives and negatives Mm -hmm. and that's why it's important to be nimble and to be able to change positions within a portfolio to try and make sure you're focused on the areas you think are going to do well. Mm. Um, you know, we've been liking Japan, for example, recently. It's done well. Uh, and avoiding some of the areas that you have fears about. Um, I think that sort of nimbleness is, is more important today than it has been for some time. Fantastic. Thank you so much uh, to both of you for joining us today and thanks so much for your insight. And thank you for listening. Please tune in to the next edition of the FT Advisor podcast. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.